All right, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and we are going to look at verses 36 all the way to chapter 24, verse 2. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse uh, 37, actually. 37. Actually, we'll start in uh, 36. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 36 and going to Matthew 24, verse 2. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 23, verse 36. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 23 and we move into Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus will turn from condemning the scribes and the Pharisees as he had throughout the entire chapter 23 to informing and instructing his disciples about two things. First, the judgments that are going to come upon that particular generation of Israelites and second, he'll engage in a larger discussion about the end times. And we know these are two separate occasions because, for example, if you bring your eyes down to Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That these things spoken of there are the same these things spoken of in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And in 36, verse 36 of chapter 24, he continues altering his course saying, But concerning that day, Concerning that hour, no one knows. So you see, there's a, these things that will come to pass in that generation, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So according to Jesus Christ here, the Lord was about to judge that generation of Israelites with these things, and the, these things in some way forms a picture or a type of an even greater series of judgment that is to come in the future. And over the next number of weeks, we are going to explore the wrath of God dispensed upon that generation along with everything Christ teaches in these chapters about the events leading up to his return and the times of final judgment. In other words, we are beginning a series on the end times. Now, I know this is a subject nobody 
cares to hear about, right? But before we get there, let's do a quick recap of what's led to this conversation. What has led to this series of instructions and revelations that is about to come. Jesus has just concluded a series of condemnations aimed at the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He has foretold and prophesied their continued and bitter and hostile response to those who will be sent to them in the near future to proclaim God's word to them. And he begins in verse 33 by looking at them and saying to them in clear and cutting language, Matthew 23, 33, you serpents. You brood of vipers. Now, that's not a nice phrase. In essence, Jesus looked at them and said, You litter of poisonous snakes who claim to serve the the Lord. You claim to serve the God of your fathers, but by your teaching and by your example, by your hypocrisy and by your pretending, you more closely resemble and imitate the serpent in the garden than you do the God of Israel. The Lord is supremely clear, perfectly precise in His Word as to what He requires. The commands of God in His Word are understandable. And his will for the nation of Israel has been intelligibly expressed. His will has been laid out for us in the pages of Scripture, for them in the scrolls. The only time Scripture isn't clear is when somebody doesn't want to do what the Scripture says. Then all of a sudden, Scripture becomes unclear. And as Jesus told these scribes and Pharisees, That's what's going on for them. And so they refused to listen to the call of the Lord throughout their history. They plugged their ears so as not to hear. They declined the Lord's repeated call to repentance and faith. Jesus looked at them and said, You simply will not obey because you don't want to. And for this reason, Israel, you have continually altered the meaning and the intention of God's Word. You have obscured it. You have edited it. You have sat in your rabbinical circles and you have explained away the true objective of God's Word. What God desires is that His people love Him. That His people be holy and set apart unto Him. This is what the Lord declared throughout the Old Testament all over the place. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. There we read these words from the lips of the Lord himself. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, and listen, which I am commanding you today for your good. Fear God. Serve God in love with all of your heart, with all of your soul. Walk in His ways. Keep His commandments and statutes, which while... Being the conduct the Lord requires from His holy people is also for your good. The commands of the Lord weren't given to Israel. The commands of the Lord aren't given to us so that we would be robbed of our joy. 
But the commands of the Lord are given to us because they are the pathway to our joy. But for this generation of scribes and Pharisees, they refuse to hear and refuse to obey. And these men, overseeing the spiritual pulse of the nation, instead of teaching people the ways of God, actually taught them and led them in ways of rebellion against God. These men worked to adapt the Word of God to fit with and to align with what they wanted and to permit their weaknesses. And in so doing, they led the nation of Israel away from paths of righteousness and onto the broad road of sin and error and disobedience and ultimately the destruction of the city and the temple. For this reason... The scribes and the Pharisees were indeed, according to Jesus, a brood of venomous snakes, striking everyone around them, injecting their deadly toxins into their spiritual bloodstream. And all the while, these men thought nothing about attributing the miraculous, compassionate, merciful, healing ministry of Jesus to the devil, to the prince of demons. Venom, venomous snakes telling the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the one in league with Satan. These venomous snakes, in their utter hatred for God, come to them in the flesh after hearing the amazed crowds question whether Jesus could be the son of David way back in Matthew 12, 23. Son of David is another way of saying Messiah. The Pharisees claimed that it was only by the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. That was their response to seeing Jesus compassionately heal people. And it goes to show just how blind and rebellious these men actually were. Because as they ascribed Jesus' miracle working power to him being in league with the devil himself, the opposite was true. Jesus ministered to the nation of Israel in the power of the Holy Spirit as a full-fledged ambassador and representative of the Father in heaven, while the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who remained citizens of Satan's realm and subject to darkness. Jesus said that much to them in John 8. You remember John 8, verse 44. He said, you Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And it does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, Jesus looked at the scribes and Pharisees and said to them, Like father, like children. You Pharisees are just like your father, the devil. And your will is not at this time, nor has it ever been, to obey the Lord that you claim to represent. No, your will and your character is similar to that of your father, the devil. You are liars, and you are, as we will soon see, murderers. 
And it's for this reason that these scribes and Pharisees, along with the generations before them, persistently rebelled against God by hardening their hearts against Him, by murdering the prophets that had been sent to them by their compassionate, merciful God, prophets whose sole aim in the nation was to call this wayward people to return to the Lord in repentance and in faith and in love. And as it's always been throughout Israel's history, the scribes and the Pharisees of Christ's day said in 23 verse 30, if that had been us, if we had been in that generation when the prophets came and said, return to the Lord, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. This is the claim that the scribes and Pharisees in Christ's day made, even as they are about to do the very thing they say they wouldn't do to Jesus himself. Because as they say this, we know, right? We know that they are in this moment thoroughly committed to destroying the prophet. No, more than a prophet, the Lord himself who is standing in front of them saying, return to the Lord. Matthew revealed as much back in chapter 12, verse 14, saying, the Pharisees went out and conspired together against Jesus how to destroy him. You see, no matter how many times Jesus pleaded with these men, no matter how many times he rebuked them, no matter how many times he called them to repentance, no matter how many times he clearly and harshly condemned and denounced them, no matter how many miraculous signs and how many miraculous wonders he so graciously performed in their sight, no matter how many times he sent his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, each and every time these scribes and these Pharisees, these religious leaders in Israel, refused to do anything other than slander him and insult him and plot his demise, all of which Jesus was fully aware of, which led to the seven condemnations that we have spent the last few weeks looking at in Matthew chapter 23. The scribes and the Pharisees of this generation had reached a point of no return. They had hardened their hearts to the point that nothing could and nothing would get through to them as they obstinately refused to see and obstinately refused to hear the call to return to the Lord, that he might bless them. For this reason, Jesus told them, there is no escape for you in verse 33. Of chapter 23. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How can, how will you avoid the coming judgment of the Lord, the devastating judgment that the Lord is poised and that is ready to fall upon this generation? The implied answer is you can't. It is coming. Therefore, verse 34, or for this reason, I send you prophets and wise men, said Jesus. Now notice the claim to deity here. Jesus is letting them see that he is their God. Throughout the Old Testament, there was only one who sent and commissioned prophets to the nation of Israel, and that's God himself. Look at Jesus. I send you prophets in the future tense. And these prophets will be commissioned with messages and revelations from God for you. But as they always did, the scribes and the Pharisees will either miss this claim, ignore this claim, 
or reject this claim. And why would Jesus send prophets and wise men? In order to give this generation of religious leaders ample opportunity to follow in the footsteps of their fathers. Look back at verse 32 of chapter 23. To fill up the measure of their fathers, which they will do by flogging these men in the synagogues, by persecuting these men from town to town, by killing them, and by crucifying them, according to verse 34. This, along with their putting Jesus himself to death, will expose this generation as being just, actually, no, even worse, even more guilty than the generations of their ancestors. The generations of their ancestors who killed such prophets as Jeremiah and Micah and Isaiah and Uriah and Zechariah. And Jesus will, after his death, his resurrection and his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit to empower, to fill an entire generation of prophets from that day to this day who will declare to Israel the saving work of God in Christ who will declare to them their mutinous response to the good news and will exhibit for all to see and will display in that day and expose their true character and bring upon themselves the devastating judgments of God prophesied centuries earlier. Look again at verse 35 of Matthew 23. I send you these men so that on you, meaning on this generation of scribes and Pharisees, may come... The uh, Legacy Standard actually clears it up a little bit better. There they state it like this. So that on this generation may fall the guilt of all, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. See, the judgment for the guilt of all righteous blood shed on earth from the very first murder of a righteous man way back in Genesis 4 when Cain murdered his brother Abel all the way to the murder of that final righteous man recorded in the Old Testament. If you take a Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, you'll see that the last book in the Old Testament according to the Hebrew is 2 Chronicles and the murder of Zechariah takes place at the end of 2 Chronicles. So the idea is that from the very first murder of a righteous man recorded in the Bible to the very last ver recorded instance of a righteous man in Scripture upon this generation of Israelites will fall the guilt of all of them from A to Z from first to last. Every slain Righteous persons will fall, the punishment for that and the guilt for that will fall upon this generation. Jesus looks at these scribes and Pharisees and said, this is coming upon you, upon your generation, because you will indeed fill up the measure of your fathers. This is what he says in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Israel's rebellion against the Lord had reached its highest point in these scribes and Pharisees and their commitment to killing Jesus himself. And at this moment, Christ turns. After verse 36, he turns from denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees to lamenting over the city of Jerusalem. 
lamenting over her rebellious history, over her traitorous present, and over what will become of the city for the foreseeable future. During what Luke will describe, and we'll talk about this in the future, what Luke will describe the times of the Gentiles. These words in verses 37 to 39, these are Christ's final words to Jerusalem. And they are filled with a pathos. They are filled with a tragic sorrow for the city. So despondent was Jesus, the human Jesus, over the state and the future of the city that even the day before he entered the city, Luke tells us in chapter 19, verse 41, that when he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. And now on this, the next day, Jesus again is grieving over the city and he cries out as he looks at it, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This repetition is purposeful. It indicates the intense emotion with which Jesus said it. And you'll see in other instances, this double repetition is used throughout Scripture, always by those who are in a, an attitude of weeping and wailing and mourning and lamenting. One example is that of David when the news of his son's death reached his ears. When the news of his son Absalom being killed came to his ear. Twice he repeats the name of his son in heartache and anguish. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 18, And the king was deeply moved and went up to his chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And again, just a few verses later, we read the same. The king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Some of your translations might even say it. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. You can feel the intense emotion of a father weeping over the death of his child. And as Jesus weeps and mourns over the city of Jerusalem, at this moment he does so like a parent weeps and mourns over the loss of their child. With absolute heartache. And why? Why does Jesus look at Jerusalem and filled with such lament, weep and mourn over the city? It's because in, throughout Scripture, Jerusalem is actually quite an important place in the plan of God. Jerusalem is referred to in Scripture well over 800 times. For example, the Lord declared... In Jerusalem, 2 Chronicles 33, which I have chosen out of all the, the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. See, Jerusalem here is the, is the city which God has chosen to put his name forever, and we will do that. He will do that as we work through in the future. The sons of Korah also in the Psalms, Psalm 46, saying this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, that is Jerusalem the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. 
They also sang in Psalm 48, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And King David in Psalm 22 calls upon the people of God to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And this because, as he writes in Psalm 132, verses 13 to 18, the Lord has chosen Zion, or Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her with provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. And the new heavens and the new earth, when all things are renewed... And we enter into the eternal kingdom of God. There we will live in what we know as the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is spoken of in Revelation at the end of our Bibles. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, we read, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Neither will he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And again, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, John speaks of a vision, and he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Jerusalem is the city that the Lord relented from destroying in the days of David when David sinned in his pride by numbering and having a census of the people of Judah. The Lord, in response to David's pride, as we read in 2 Samuel 24, is that he sent a pestilence upon the land in his wrath. And as the angel was overseeing that pestilence, as the angel overseeing the pestilence, as according to 2 Samuel 24, stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. The text says the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Stay your hand. Jerusalem, the city where the temple resided, the city where the ark was the city where the presence of the Lord dwelt among the people of Israel. Jerusalem, the city where its prosperity is a blessing to, the, to all the nations of the world. As the psalmists sing in Psalm 128, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Jerusalem, the city that our Lord will never finally relinquish. While at this moment, Jerusalem lives according to the words of, and the prophetic words of Isaiah 64, where we read this, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. 
Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? See, the Lord has promised in Isaiah 66 that one day this situation will come to an end. Isaiah 66, verses 10 to 14, the Lord said to Jerusalem, Rejoice! Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice in, with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees as one who, whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem." You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. There is coming a day when the Lord fulfills the word that he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. At that time, says the Lord, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it the presence, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem and they shall no more follow, stubbornly follow their own heart. There is coming the day when the Lord fulfills the promise he made through the prophet Joel in chapter 3, verse 1. I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. You see the way the Old Testament spoke about this city. See the way God spoke about this city. Jerusalem played and will play a large role in the eschatological plan. Eschatology is a big word, a big fancy theological word meaning the end times or the doctrine of the end times and the last things. And the fact that Jerusalem is so important to God's plan only serves to increase this powerful emotional outburst of our Lord Jesus Christ on this day. As he turns away from the villainous, evil-doing scribes and Pharisees and lays his eyes on the city that will suffer the consequences for their wickedness. For they're having filled up the measure of their father's sinful rebellion. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, verse 37. The very city the Lord has chosen to be a blessing to the world. The very city whose prosperity advantages and benefits all the nations. The very city where the presence of the Lord dwelt for centuries. The same city, even with all of their privileges. I mean, this is the city, according to Romans 3.2, that was entrusted with the oracles of God. This is the city that the Lord repeatedly sent prophets to, calling her to repentance. Many of whom were killed and stoned to death, said Jesus. And even in our own day, even in our own day, 
We send ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nation, and they are still widely rejected, mocked and looked upon with suspicion. Those whose primary aim is blessing Israel, and in so doing, blessing the entire world. This millennia-spanning revolt in Israel, this persistent mutiny against the Lord by the inhabitants of Jerusalem, by the very nation that God chose from all the nations of the earth to be His treasured possession among all peoples, led to this moment. Look at it again, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Oh, how often I have sent prophets to you throughout your generations. Oh, how often I have spoken directly to you through them. How often I've held out to you threatenings. How often I've held out to you consolations. How often I've held out to you prophecies of judgment and prophecies of restoration and nothing. You are not willing. You were not willing to return. Jerusalem, I have spared no expense for you. I have taken on flesh to visit you. The very God who spoke to you in the burning bush, who revealed the law to you through the servant Moses, is here among you now. How often I have spent myself for you on this earth. How often I've exhausted myself teaching and healing and rebuking and warning you in order to protect you from the judgment that you are about to endure. Oh, how often I would have gathered you and your children to hide you under the shelter of my wings from any and all harm. And still, and still, you reject my offer of safety and security. After thousands of years of calling you to myself, Jerusalem, you have spurned your king. You have rejected the kingdom offered to you. You have trampled upon the blood of the covenant. You have brought upon yourself the judgments of the Lord. Only this time, as the angel of destruction stretches his hand out toward Jerusalem to destroy it, as he did in the days of David, the Lord is not going to relent. Oh, Jerusalem. The Lord will not stay His powerful, shattering hand. And Jerusalem, you are going to be destroyed. You are going to be left desolate. Now, while Jesus is speaking clearly and directly to the city and the inhabitants of Jerusalem here, speaking to the traitorous and insubordinate nation of Israel, the picture that He paints here serves as a warning for us today also. In the same way that Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ led to the awful, terrible, and devastating judgments of the Lord upon the nation, because after all, He did call them home and they were not willing to respond positively, the same is true for each and every one of us here this morning. The Lord who is merciful and long-suffering and gracious and patient as He is has left no stone unturned in both providing everything necessary for you to be saved. 
He has given His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that everyone, and I mean everyone, who lays hold of Him by grace through faith in His name would not perish eternally in hell under the torment of God's righteous holy wrath, but would instead be given eternal life. The Jewish nation thought the call of the prophets to a full committed obedience and worship to the Lord led them away from fullness of joy the fullness of joy that we also desperately seek. And they sought to keep and to lay hold upon those acts of sin and disobedience that they thought brought more joy to their life. But what those acts of sin and disobedience do is actually steal from them the very joy that the Lord is offering to them. The Lord is calling to you, be joyful in me, as he calls you to single-minded devotion to him. And for you and I, the same is true. The Lord leaving no stone unturned, He calls you to Himself. He calls you and I to single-minded worship and devotion. He calls you and I to loving Him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength because He has created us in such a way that relationship with Him the worship and exaltation of His name, obedience to His will, far from inhibiting and hindering your joy, is actually the way that you lay hold of joy. And in love, your Lord calls out the same to you with the same intense pathos, with the same compassionate cry, O child, O child, how I would gather you in as a hen gathers her brood under her wing. Call out to me. Lay hold of the grace that I offer to you through faith in me. Look at everything I've done for you to prove my love. Why would you reject me? Why remain rebellious and unwilling to turn to me and be saved? Why would you hear about my love for you and then return to the trough of sin with its ultimate penalty of eternal death when you can believe in me? I am the one who offers you a royal banquet in my eternal halls of glory. I am the one who offers to you rejoicing. I am a willing Savior. Come to me and be saved. Look to me and receive from my hand all the benefits of my love. All the advantages of my grace. I have purchased for you, if you are only willing, to lay hold of it a full pardon for sin. Turn to me, and I will gather you under my comforting, protecting, and guarding wing. The Israelites heard the same call, and they refused. Over and over again, they refused. And Jesus pronounced that generation's doom, saying, see, your house is left to you desolate, in verse 38. The glory of the Lord has departed from you, Jerusalem. And, your, and the house of the Lord, along with the city of Jerusalem, it's no longer the Lord's city. It's no longer the Lord's temple. Look at the word. Your house is left to you desolate. Your house will be left devastated. It is left to you. That word desolate means uninhabited and uncultivated. There is coming a time when this place will be uninhabited and uncultivated. And this desolation that Christ refers of will come to pass in history a mere four generations from this moment. Luke records it like this. 
When you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This is the description of the desolation coming to Jerusalem. It will be surrounded by armies. Those armies will destroy the city and it will be so calamitous and so catastrophic that for anyone living in the city in those days, it would be better for them to flee out into the mountains and live exposed to the harsh elements, to flee out into the mountains and have no food. And for those in the city, pregnant women and nursing babies, oh, how difficult these days will be. The desolation of Jerusalem will be a time of the Lord's vengeance. And the people who remain in the city, according to Jesus in Luke, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive to all the nations. And finally, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Matthew records Jesus' words a little more cryptically when he said to them in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, when Jesus left the temple and was going away with his disciples going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now you have to put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jewish Jew, a first century Jew, that the city of Jerusalem could be overthrown in so complete a manner was an unthinkable reality to them. You see, the temple complex in Jerusalem at this time was a wonder of the ancient world. Josephus, the Jewish historian, speaks about the finishing touches of the temple. It took eight years with 10,000 men working around the clock to put the finishing touches on this building, on this complex. The entire complex took around 80 years to complete. And yet, as admired as this opulent building was, as great an architectural marvel that this building was, Jesus prophesied to his disciples that the entirety of it would be raised to the ground and not one stone would be left on another. And according to Jesus, this generation would not pass away until all these things take place. And the prophetic word of Jesus did indeed come to pass in A.D. 70, 40 years later, in the generation after he spoke these words. When the Jews in Jerusalem revolted against the Roman leadership and authority in the region. And in response, the Roman emperor Vespasian sent his son, the general Titus, with, along with his Roman legions to crush the rebellion in Jerusalem. And while the Jewish resistance to, Romans, to the Romans was stiff for a time, eventually, inevitably, Titus broke through the last of Jerusalem's fortifications, and as the Roman armies poured into the city of Jerusalem, they slaughtered over one million men, women, pregnant mothers, nursing mothers, infants, and children in the city. And they also took 95,000 captives and sold them into slavery throughout the empire. 
And Titus commanded his armies to completely destroy the city to the point that the city looked as though it had never been inhabited at all. And as the Romans massacred the Jews, a number of the Jews fled to the temple for protection. And history records their being barred up inside the temple as drunken Roman soldiers celebrated their victory all around the building. They set it on fire. And the fire spread so quickly throughout the building and it burned so hot that all of the gold in the temple began to melt and it started lodging itself in the crevices of the temple between all the stones of the temple, which led the Roman generals to command that all of the stones of the temple be taken down in order to reclaim and salvage that gold. Fulfilling the words of Christ, there will not be here, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In fact, the felling of the temple was so complete that even today, with all of our archaeological time, efforts, and tools, the precise location of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, in that temple still remains unknown to us. The desolate house prophesied by Christ came to pass in A.D. 70, and the old city of Jerusalem remained uninhabited and uncultivated until Emperor Hadrian, 70 years later, rebuilt the city and erected a statue or a temple of the Roman god Jupiter on the site of the old temple of God and renamed the city Aelia Capitolina. And Hadrian enacted a law declaring that while Christians and pagans could enter the city, Jews were barred from the city, and should a Jew enter this city, they would be put to death. That the temple and the city was so completely destroyed also carried with it another stunning reality. During the reign of King Ahaz, for example, the king of Israel trembled as, here's what the text tells us, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem in order to wage war against it. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. And so when hearing this report... Isaiah tells us the heart of Ahaz's people in Judah and Jerusalem shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind, meaning they were afraid. They were tremendously afraid. And so the Lord sent a message to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah saying this, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And the Lord even went so far as to guarantee Ahaz that Jerusalem would not be destroyed in this time. And the Lord even offered to seal that guarantee with a sign. And this is the sign that the Lord gave. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, a famous verse, you probably all know it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the word of the Lord to Isaiah is this. The city of Jerusalem will remain until the virgin conceives and bears a son. Emmanuel, God with us. And the moment from the, the time of this prophetic announcement until the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, 800 years elapsed. So the Lord revealed that this particular promise had been fulfilled and now could no longer be fulfilled by destroying the city of Jerusalem along with the temple. 
And because the destruction of the temple has taken place, because the city was destroyed, there is now no one who could rise up and fill this prophecy. It had to have occurred before Jerusalem's fall. The son has been born. The child has been given. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. So in case you're ever wondering how the details of creation's history sometimes fit together and work together to bring about God's most perfect and excellent plan, in case there are times when you wonder about but just can't seem to understand how the Lord's moving it all together, just remember the Lord's promise to Ahaz. There is a millennia of things happening here. Think about all the Lord did to protect Jerusalem for the intervening eight centuries. And then to increase our confidence today in the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture's promise, he destroys Jerusalem, ensuring that no one else could ever truly be considered for that role ever again. But back to Christ's words regarding the desolate house that would be Jerusalem. Had the text ended here, with, see, your house is left to you desolate, one might legitimately wonder if the promises of God made to his people Israel had failed. If the God of heaven and earth is a God who doesn't keep his word and who doesn't keep his promise. But hallelujah, we serve a God who keeps his promises, who fulfills every single last one of his words. And you see it in verse 39. Jesus continues with an until. You see that? Until. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The until means that this desolation is not the final word for Jerusalem. It's not if, it's not unless, but until. This is a word that speaks to future certainty. Declaring that there will come a day when the God who makes promises to his people and keeps those promises makes good on the promises that he made to his people of Israel, ethnic Israel. There will come a day when Israel returns to the Lord and is redeemed and restored as guaranteed by the Lord. As we read in Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, meaning in Jerusalem. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. These days that are spoken of here are the future days of Christ's earthly reign during his millennial kingdom, which we will speak more of in the future. There is coming a day when Judah and Israel will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. And Jesus quotes it as a way of declaring himself to be the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. He said he will return when Judah could sing this song about the one to whom it refers from their hearts as a saved people. When Israel sings, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you, Lord, from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. See, they will see Jesus once again, 
as he returns to them to fulfill all of the kingdom promises that had been given to them by the Lord in the Old Testament, when they recognize him as their king and as their Lord and as their savior. And in closing, we're going to work through these next chapters, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse over the next, the coming months. And as we do, we'll be exploring the things that Christ has said about the end times and the last things. As we do, we're going to learn more about what we've already learned. Some of the facts and things that we've touched upon will be expanded upon. We'll learn more about the God who cares for his people Israel, who makes and keeps promises that he has made to his people Israel. We will learn more about this God who is the promise-keeping God who makes and keeps promises to you, to you and I who believe in his name. We will learn that we serve and worship a God who oversees all of earth's events, all of the agitations, all of the uprisings, all of the upheavals, and yes, even the destruction of cities and the downfall of nations. And all of it happens according to his plan. And there is nothing and there is no one who can stay his hand. There is no one who can stop his plan. There is no one who can say, Lord, what have you done? He does all of this according to his good and perfect will, and he leads everything according, all things to his intended end. And we serve a God who has already charted out where everything is going, where everything will end up, because he is in control, and he sovereignly rules over it all. We serve a God who, as he will do for Judah and Jerusalem, will gather you, will gather you under the shelter of his wings if you would only be willing to repent and turn to him in faith. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are the promise-keeping God. We thank you that whether you make a promise to your church, whether you make a promise to Israel, whoever you make a promise to, you are a God who keeps your promises. Because of that, we can have rock-solid assurance in your name. We can know that when you, Lord Jesus, say to us that you have gone to prepare a place for us and that you're going to come back and take us to be with you where you are, that we can eagerly await and expect the fulfillment of that promise as you have made it. So, Lord, we rest confidently in your promises. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we may not understand fully why it is that you do things the way that you do, we rest confident and sure that you are the God who does indeed work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. So we thank you, our confidence-inspiring God. In Christ's name, amen.